Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. According to Max, something lurked in the woods that surrounded Lincoln Way. Something not human, but not like any animal we'd ever seen or heard. He claimed that this creature had tormented the street's residents. Pets would go missing, only to be found some days later mutilated at the woodline. Backyard gardens would be torn up by paws too big to belong to rabbits or dogs. People would be kept awake at night by something scratching and banging on the side of their home or snarls and howls that seemed to be right outside of their window. Supposedly, no one had seen the beast causing such trouble on Lincoln Way. At least no one who had stuck around to tell anyone about it. Max claimed that the street was abandoned out of fear, each occupied house being left after its inhabitants were spooked by an escalation in the creature's torment. That would explain why most, if not all, of the houses still contained so many belongings. You don't take the time to load furniture into a U-Haul and empty your fridge if you're scared out of your mind. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, weirdos. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is a special archive episode of Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale for me to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com. And be sure to subscribe if you've not done so already so you don't miss a single episode. And if you already consider yourself an official weirdo, please help me get the word out by sharing a link to this episode in your social media and thanks in advance for doing so. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. Lochinvar is a private residence north of the town of Pontotec. The town is located about 20 miles west of Tupelo on Highway 6. Lochinvar Plantation is a true part of the Old South, steeped in the lore of the southern states and drenched in the traditions of long ago. Built in the late 1830s, the mansion was home to the Gordon family for many years and watched over by an old caretaker. The Gordon family is long gone now, but the old caretaker still watches over the place. Lochinvar was built by Robert Gordon, a Scottish adventurer in the late 1830s as a gift for his wife. At the time, Gordon owned a strip of land which stretched all of the way from Pontotac to Aberdeen, 60 miles away. Aberdeen was Gordon's own town. He had founded a trading post there in the early 1830s and named the place Dundee in honor of a town in Scotland. He later changed the name to Aberdeen. It was near Pontotoc where Gordon found the land where he wanted to build his home. The location that he chose had been the land of the Choctaw Indian chief Chinubi 
and once the Indians were gone from the area, he began building the new house. After moving into the grand mansion, the Gordons would have one child, a son named James. His earliest memories of Lochinvar included magnificent parties and his personal servant named Ebenezer. He could not remember a time when Ebenezer had not been a part of his life. He taught James to hunt and fish, told him stories, supervised his manners, and when he was old enough, packed his trunks and watched him leave for the University of Mississippi at Oxford in 1851. As the years passed, the beloved slave grew older and became known by the respectful name of Uncle Eb. He remained particularly close to James Gordon, and their relationship went far beyond master and servant. In February of 1856, James married Virginia Wiley, and in December of that year, their daughter Annie was born. From the time that she could walk, Annie was attached to Uncle Eb. She followed him everywhere and begged him to push her on the swings and to tell her stories. Delighted, Uncle Eb took under his wing a new generation of Gordons. Then came the Civil War. Robert Gordon, now too old to be involved, gave the support and advice to James and they raised a company of Confederate cavalry, the first from northern Mississippi. Before James Gordon left for service, he called Uncle Eb to see him. Take care of my family and the plantation, he told his mentor. My father needs your help and I need to know that you're here with my family. Don't let anything happen to them and I'll be back home soon. He embraced the older man and told him goodbye. This began Uncle Eb's role as the caretaker and guardian of Lochinvar. Every afternoon he would begin his rounds of the property, making sure the gates were closed, the doors to the house were locked, and there were no strangers lurking around the plantation. He moved his bed to the hallway outside of Annie's door, where he slept from that night on. He took to roaming the grounds at various times throughout the night, carrying an oil lantern and making sure that everything was secure. As time passed, he learned other skills and began making repairs on the house and the farming equipment. He learned to cook and prepare the meals and even to darn socks and make repairs on clothing. Night after night, the light from Uncle Eb's lantern circled the house, the barn, the garden, the pasture, and the orchards, reassuring himself that nothing was amiss and that the people he loved were safe. One night, while Uncle Eb was on his rounds, a rider approached. It was Captain James Gordon, home for a brief stay at Lochinvar. A few days after he left, he was promoted to the rank of colonel, returning to combat with the 2nd Mississippi Cavalry Regiment Armstrong's Brigade. Colonel Gordon and Uncle Eb would never meet again. One rainy night, Uncle Eb was roused from his sleep by a strange sound. He took his lantern outside and crossed the grounds in the storm. He was soaked to the skin before he was sure that everything was secure. A day or so later, what seemed to be a cold developed into pneumonia. In less than a week, old Uncle Eb was dead. It was a long time before Colonel Gordon received word of his friend's death. He was in England at the time on a mission for President Davis. On his way home, he landed in North Carolina 
and was captured and imprisoned. He soon escaped and made his way to Canada. There he met and befriended an actor named John Wilkes Booth. This casual friendship with Booth later pointed suspicion to Gordon when President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. Luckily, Gordon was able to prove his innocence. After the war, Gordon finally learned that Uncle Eb had passed away while carrying out his duties to the plantation. Many believe that since Uncle Eb died before the war ended and before his guardianship of the Gordon home came to an end, he has not rested in peace in the years since the Civil War. As the years have passed, his oil lantern is still seen roaming the grounds of the Lochinvar estate. It has been seen for decades, and locals believe that the light belongs to the spirit of Uncle Eb, watching over his beloved family throughout eternity. There was a mysterious force that in Japan is known as yokai. According to ancient Japanese beliefs, yokai, in Chinese kanji which means strangeness, mystery, or suspicion, are weird creatures that dwell in the borderlands and in spaces which are located in between. The belief in yokai was mentioned in Shokunai Hanji text dated to the 8th century and still this ancient belief is alive in the Japanese modern society. Yokai can take many different forms and are mostly associated with villages, old abandoned towns, deserted mountain passes. Yokai do not belong to anybody, they just exist, appear usually at twilight when our surroundings look strange and are difficult to recognize. They haunt bridges and tunnels entranceways and lurk and disturb at crossroads and thresholds. They are elsewhere, changing their forms and places. Research suggests that this creature dwells in the contact zone between fact and fiction, between belief and doubt. Yokai is the common name for monster, transformed humans and animals, demon, spirit, or goblin. People say they are simply monsters. Their nature varies from benign to mischievous to seriously scary. In his book, The Book of Yokai, Mysterious Creatures of Japanese Folklore, which is based on his long study of yokai, M.D. Foster mentions an intriguing and unpleasant story from a collection of tales from Yujai. This story tells of a monk traveling alone through the province of Setsu located in the vicinity of the present-day city of Osaka. Coming upon a deserted temple, he decided to settle in for the night and begins chanting an incantation to the guardian deity Fudo, who battles evil with his immovable faith and compassion. But suddenly, a crowd some hundred strong comes surging into the temple, every one of them with a torch in hand. When they got close, he saw that they were fantastically weird creatures, not men at all. They were all sorts of them, some with only one eye, some with horns, while their heads were more terrible than words can describe. The monk spends a terrifying night, 
surviving only because Fudo protects him. After the gang of Onai finally leaves and the sun rises, the monk is shocked to discover that there is actually no temple at all, and he cannot even find the path that brought him there. Eventually, he meets some travelers who inform him that he is in the province of Hizen, hundreds of miles from Setsu. It is worth mentioning that Onai is a term usually associated with danger and fear. This term is generally translated today as demon or ogre. During the Haiyan period, Onai meant a nasty and threatening creature that frequently appeared in human-like form. Onai has an enormous evil power, and when engaged in fight, these terrible creatures can reattach body parts they lose in fights. They crush enemies with one blow from their spiked iron club. They can also fly, change form at will, and cause diseases, insanity, and death. Their favorite food is human flesh. Were these terrible Onai creatures responsible for teleportation of the monk to another very distant location? What did really happen to him? I was working for a produce company in San Francisco, delivering organic fruit and vegetables to the well-off residing in the Bay Area. Part of my route was in Mill Valley, which is located on the other side of the Golden Gate Bridge. If you can imagine a bunch of rich hippie types living in the woods, you can get the gist in what this place looks like. Anyway, it was my first week on the job so the driver that was leaving was riding shotgun while directing me throughout the day. We pulled up to this house, which had a ridiculously long driveway. So there I was, pumping this box of apples and whatnot to this monster house, and when I entered the front yard, the heebie-jeebies started to run up the back of my neck. I walked up to the front door with my head on a swivel and knocked on the door. No answer. I shrugged, put the box on the doormat, and turned around to a very old, very white old man in very white pajamas. He resembled Santa that was dipped in a vat of bleach. He just stood there with his dead stare. It was like he was looking through me without blinking nor moving, and now that I think about it, I probably had the same expression. So, after five seconds or so, I just scurried around him while mumbling an awkward, um, uh, excuse me. I bolted for the truck, and when I jumped inside, my ride-along looked up from his book and asked how everything went. I just started up the truck, blurted out, I think I just seen a ghost, dude, and kicked up dust. Two weeks later, I had another delivery at that house. But this time, an older lady answered the door. I asked her if her husband was a heavier set man with a beard. She answered yes, but how did I know? So I told her about our encounter, and of course she replied back to me that that was impossible because he had died two years prior. Let me start 
by saying that I do not have an opinion as to whether or not spirits exist. I'm a Christian and we do not own a Ouija board. We do, however, have the odd ability to predict events and very accurate intuition in various members of our family. Last September, we moved into a new home. Initially, both children refused to take one of the bedrooms for an unknown reason. They just didn't want it. We gave it to our three, now four-year-old, thinking he'd put up less of a fight. We settled in, and shortly thereafter our son refused to sleep in his room. We would find him in various places of the house, desperately claiming there were monsters in his room. We initially thought this to just be a childish fear and brushed it off. The only odd thing I noticed was that both cats slept under the right window of his room. We put the letters Adam above his dresser, and the next day my oldest showed me that the A had fallen, and it now said, Damn. We laughed. Shortly thereafter, our four-year-old told us that the monster came in through his right window at night. He described the monster as the Puppet Man because there was something on his hand trying to tell him stories, but the man does not talk through his mouth. Our son described the man as large, with a hairy face. In my son's description, the man did not hurt or touch him, but continuously tried to tell stories or talk to him. When asked what the puppet man wanted, my son replied, to talk with me. My son also felt like this monster was invading his space. It had been months, and yet my son will still not sleep in the room. My son tells me the monster will not cross the doorway of his room because he can't. A little while later, he asked me if I had somehow come home from work, I work nights, put a ladder under his right window, climbed through the window and sat Indian style on the floor next to his bed. When he asked who it was, the visitor said, I'm a mommy. I informed him that it wasn't me, and he stated, I didn't think she was actually you. This mommy wears a black dress and has dark hair. I think she is white-skinned. He does not fear her as much as the puppet man, and his fear of the room lessened to some after her appearance. Within the last few weeks, my son has started to claim there was a 10-year-old boy named Michael around. When Michael's there, my son does come out of his room. We've heard my son talking to this Michael and playing with him. He pretends to interact with Michael. He appears to appreciate Michael's presence and even offers him toys. He describes Michael's skin as orange-brown and he has black hair. Within the last few days, he's been telling me that Michael has a woman, possibly mother, named Zozo. The woman is pinker-skinned with black and yellow hair. Clearly, she's associated with Michael. He's been using the name Zozo so frequently that I decided to Google it just to see if there was a cartoon character with that name or to find another logical reason for the name Zozo to keep coming up. I'm a little concerned and frightened that it suggested that this Zozo is a spirit entity. I'm not sure what to think of my son's strange monsters. However, if such a thing does exist, 
Should I be concerned for his safety? Have you had a run-in with Zozo? I should have listened, but I'm stupid and stubborn. When someone tells you not to put your hand on the hot stove, you listen, right? And if you don't, you get hurt, and there's no one to blame but yourself. It started two weeks ago. My buddies and I had rented a cabin near a lake for the opening weekend of trout season. We fished, we drank beer, we cooked over the fire, we were having a great time. That Saturday night, as we sat around the fire with drinks in hand, we started telling ghost stories. Most of them were old urban legends, some of them were personal experiences, others were scary stories that ended with a hilarious insult to someone's mother. It was all in good fun. Until Max told us about Lincoln Way. Lincoln Way was a residential street in a town near where we lived in southwestern Pennsylvania. We were all familiar with it. My parents used to have a friend that lived in the last house on the Dead End Road, so I spent a good portion of my time there when I was a kid. The street was something of an oddity because every single house there was now abandoned. No one seemed to know why the residents of Lincoln Way just seemed to get out of Dodge leaving behind food, furniture, and even cars. A local group of urban explorers had recently posted an article on their Facebook page about it, finding that the houses still had the same owners as they had as far back as the 70s, but no one was willing to live on the now overgrown street. Most people assumed that the people moved away from Lincoln Way because of the poor economy taking its toll on an already poverty-stricken area but Max claimed to know better. He claimed to know the real reason that the residential street no longer had any residents. According to Max, something lurked in the woods that surrounded Lincoln Way. Something not human, but not like any animal we had ever seen or heard of. He claimed that this creature had tormented the street's residents. Pets would go missing, only to be found some days later mutilated at the wood line. Backyard gardens would be torn up by paws too big to belong to rabbits or dogs. People would be kept awake at night by something scratching and banging on the side of their home, or snarls and howls that seemed to be right outside of their window. Supposedly, no one had seen the beast causing such trouble on Lincoln Way, at least no one who had stuck around to tell anyone about it. Max claimed that the street was abandoned out of fear, each occupied house being left after its inhabitants were spooked by an escalation in the creature's torment. That would explain why most, if not all, of the houses still contained so many belongings. You don't take the time to load furniture into a U-Haul and empty your fridge if you're scared out of your mind. I was skeptical of the story, 
as any reasonable person would be. Lincoln Way might not have been surrounded by other residential streets, but it was right off a main road. That main road had a gas station and a bar less than a minute down the road one way and an entire town less than two minutes in the other direction. Surely, if there was some terrible creature in the area, it wouldn't stick to that one road and the patch of woods that surrounded it. My parents' friend had moved out of that neighborhood almost 20 years ago, so my argument that he had never had a problem with Bigfoot was almost immediately swept aside. When I suggested that we go check it out next weekend, I was met with horrified stares and exclamations of disapproval. You can't go there. I just told you that something horrible lives there. There's no way in hell I'm going there. I'm too pretty to die. And dude, even if there isn't some weird monster there, I'm not risking getting arrested or hurt by wandering around a street full of houses that are probably falling down. And there are probably a lot of rats. I hate rats. Were just some of the arguments I heard. Only one person out of the five other guys that sat around the fire with me that night was willing to explore with me. His name was Sam, and he was a big guy covered in tattoos. Sam was arguably the biggest badass in our group, but behind the beard and drawings of skulls and other crazy stuff that was inked into his skin, he was a great guy and a loyal friend. The only reason he agreed to go with me was because he didn't want me to go by myself. He saw that I was determined to debunk Max's story and told me I'm not letting your dumb ass go in there alone and get mugged by some hobo squatter or some weird crap. Your mom would be pissed at me, and she's way scarier than Bigfoot. So the next weekend, last Saturday to be exact, Sam picked me up when we got off work and we drove to Lincoln Way. Sam parked his blue pickup truck in front of one of the houses at the beginning of the street. It was still light outside, but it was later in the day, so we brought flashlights with us. We didn't know how long we would be there or how dark it would be inside the dilapidated houses that we were determined to explore. We decided to walk along the wood line first, which meant walking through the overgrown backyards of the houses. We tried to look for evidence of digging in the yards, but the grass and weeds were so high that it would have taken forever to scan the ground it grew from. We walked the length of the street through the backyards, crossed the street at the dead end, and walked down the opposite side through those yards. When we were confident that nothing was going to jump from the trees and grab us, we started looking inside the houses. Sam and I weren't comfortable going into many of the houses because of how run down they were. The ones we didn't enter, we looked at the insides through first floor windows. Every house on the block was full of belongings, and most of them looked like they had been ransacked. Furniture was overturned, thrown against walls, photos were strewn all over the floors, the curtains that still hung were shredded, and pillows, throw pillows and those for beds, were torn open. Out of all of the houses, there were only four or five that weren't tossed, and those houses were more disturbing. The houses that we entered that didn't look like a hurricane hit the inside looked like someone could have been living there, minus the dirt and grime. Pictures still hung on the walls, books were still on the shelves, beds were made, and dishes were in the sink. 
One of the houses had food on the table, though it looked like some small critters had munched on it long ago. It looked like the previous residents literally just up and left in the middle of dinner without bothering to take anything with them. One of the houses had a garage. Its door looked like it fell off the track long ago. It still had a car parked inside. The sun was almost completely set when Sam and I exited the last house we had explored, and we were thoroughly creeped out by our findings. So we decided it was time to call it a night and go home. We were walking towards Sam's truck when we heard it. Scratch. 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 Bang! We froze, standing completely still in the middle of a cracked road, and listened to the sounds for a minute or so. It was coming from behind the house to our left. Sam whispered that we should get the hell out of there, but I wanted to prove Max wrong. Like I said at the beginning, I'm an idiot. I slowly made my way toward the noise, keeping my hand cupped over the front of my flashlight. I was about to round the corner into the backyard when it stopped. I listened for a few seconds, standing completely still. I could hear something coming toward me slowly, something big creeping through the tall grass. I pressed myself against the side of the house and looked back to see Sam still standing in the middle of the road. A deep, guttural snarl made me turn my attention back to the yard. And I saw it. It stood on all fours and was as big as a horse. Thick, black hair covered its massive body. Its muscular front legs were tipped with claws longer than my fingers, and its mouth was full of too many razor-sharp teeth. The few people I've described it to reasoned that it was a bear or a large wildcat far from home, but it didn't look like either of those. The beast's head almost resembled a massive dog except for the horns perched on either side. I stared into deep, red eyes, rooted to my spot with terror as this creature slowly made its way closer to me. Another growl escaped from its throat and I began to shake so badly that I dropped my flashlight. The sudden movement and flash of light seemed to startle it. I took my chance and ran back to the street, screaming for Sam to get into the truck and start the engine. I could hear heavy paws hitting the ground not far behind me as I ran faster than I have ever run in my life. I launched myself into Sam's truck and he threw it into gear and pulled a U-turn to get us the hell out of there. The truck's headlights illuminated the beast for a moment as it stopped in the middle of the road to avoid being hit. What I had thought was fur was actually closer to a mass of thin porcupine needles, and every one on its back stood straight up as the beast crouched to spring at the truck. Sam was speeding toward the main road when we heard the howl of the creature. It sounded pained and angry, as if it was starving and upset that it was denied a meal. We now know why Lincoln Way was abandoned. The people were harassed, maybe worse, by some kind of monster that resides in the woods, waiting for someone to investigate a strange noise so that it can attack. It's hungry and vicious, and it's not alone. I know this because when Sam was turning the truck around during our great escape, his headlights briefly pointed into the woods. 
That's where I saw at least three more sets of deep, shining red eyes. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by MyPillow. Why don't we hear what Weird Darkness family member Mike had to say about his? Darren, I happen to be trying new pillows from different sources, something different than the standard pillows that get crappy all too soon. So, what the heck, my pillow sounded worth trying. I ordered two queen-size MyPillows, and these really are, in a word, luxurious. The way your head and neck just sinks ever so comfortably into the pillow, it's so soft but at the same time so supportive. Mike said he received two queen-size MyPillows, that's because he heard about them on Weird Darkness and he was able to get two premium MyPillows for one low price. Go to MyPillow.com, use the promo code WEIRD, that's MyPillow.com, then use the promo code WEIRD. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by the terrifying audiobook Into Darkness by Jason R. Davis, the greatly anticipated sequel to his novel Inside the Mirrors. Previously available only to Weird Darkness patrons, Into Darkness is now available worldwide. A creature part of the darkness before God created the heavens and earth has awakened. It had slumbered, hibernating from the light. Now it is hungry and wanting to feed. Bobby, a local kid, and the police chief have gone missing. Everyone in the small town of Standard is turning to former Chicago cop Rob Aletto to find them. But as he starts his search, more people disappear. Rob is quickly overwhelmed. The night itself seems to come alive, taking these people. Aletto must find out why and discover a way to stop it before the entire town slips into darkness. Into Darkness by Jason R. Davis Narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marlar. Hear a free sample of the audiobook on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com. This story took place during my childhood in the 1970s. We lived in Manchester, UK in a council property in a now derelict part of the city. Back then, the houses were considered old, quite run down. That house always had a strange feeling for me, particularly the cupboard under the stairs. I never felt comfortable leaving the living room unless I was with one of my parents. I always got a feeling of real dread any time I approached that point of the hall and used to run full out of the living room to the stairs and run all the way up them, then rush down them. I never, ever saw anything, but the feeling was sheer terror and horror. One night, my dad had taken me up to my bed and tucked me in, leaving the door slightly open to allow a little bit of light to come in from the upstairs hall landing. I fell asleep quickly that night. Sometime later, I was woken by a hand on my right shoulder. As I opened my eyes and turned around expecting to see one of my parents, I was shocked to find an old woman whom I'd never seen before leaning over the bars of my cot bed looking down on me. 
I let out a scream and started shouting for my dad. As I did this, the old woman, whose face was heavily wrinkled, with her hair pulled tight into a scruffy bun, wearing a typical granny-type apron and her dress with the sleeves rolled up to the elbow, began backing off, bringing her hand to her mouth and ushering me to before saying, it's okay, she continued to back off into the far corner of the room, all the time urging me with the shush. She eventually vanished into the darkest corner of the room moments before my dad came running into my room. I had him search the room from top to bottom, but no one was there, no sign of anyone. He checked the window, it was locked. He checked my wardrobe. It was empty, other than my clothes, and it was too small for anyone to hide in, including me. A few years after we left that house, one of my aunts told us she'd been talking to a local resident when she'd asked specifically about the house we'd lived in. The woman then told her about a couple who had lived there sometime in the late 40s through until the mid-70s. It seems they couldn't have children, though she desperately wanted to. Over the years, she became more bitter and resentful to her husband to the point where she would lock him in the cupboard under the stairs for days on end. He died sometime around the late 60s. She lived until a year before we took on the property, apparently dying in the house and being found in the front box room, which later became my bedroom. Cornelius Piros is a young man from Malaysia that I met in Nagoya through mutual friends. He had been a practicing medical doctor in Malaysia before he took a sabbatical to come to Japan and learn the Japanese language. After meeting him at a series of parties and social events, he came to be a good friend with my wife and I, coming to our home in Nagoya many times for dinner parties, barbecues, and so on. Cornelius's encounter with Japanese ghosts occurred in Malaysia when he was a student. I was a student at the Anglo-Chinese school in Ipoh, Malaysia. It was a high school with a long history built in 1893. At the time, I was living in the school dorm in the student hostel called Horley Hall. There were many strange things going on at Horley Hall. While staying there, I twice met something that was not usual. Three days after starting at the school, I was walking outside near the hall and saw a teacher there, an Indian woman dressed in a white sari. She was standing there with a sad look on her face. This was my first time to see this teacher. So later, I asked one of the older students who is the teacher who wears a white sari. He looked at me strangely and then asked, does that teacher have short hair? There's only one teacher working here who wears a sari and she always wears a red one. She doesn't wear a white sari. After thinking a minute, he took me to the school library. On the wall were pictures of past teachers at the school. He showed me a picture of the wife of a former headmaster. Her name was Mrs. Threethram. He asked me, is this the woman you saw? Yes, I answered. She committed suicide by burning herself in a fire in front of the school. She killed herself because she thought her husband was having an affair with another woman. 
Since then, many others have seen her ghost walking around the school. After that, I was sick with a high fever for a whole week. Also, sometimes the students would see Japanese soldiers who had died in World War II walking around the school. One early morning, around 2 or 3 a.m., all the students in my hostel, about 20 people in all, woke up because they heard a large group of people marching outside the hostel. There were often many school groups marching around during the day, but we wondered who was marching in the middle of the night. We went outside and looked across the field and we saw no one there, but we could hear the loud marching for 20 or 30 minutes. We heard men issuing commands in Japanese. We were more than a little disturbed by this, so we called up the school warden. He said, don't worry, last group of students who stayed in your hostel heard the same thing and they were okay, so nothing will happen to you, just go back to bed. We later learned that the British Army had occupied the school during World War II. When the Japanese came, there was fighting and many British and local people were killed there. The Japanese soldiers used the school as a base and they tortured and killed many people there. The basement and the underground toilets were used as dungeons. I heard that there were blood-stained tiles in the underground rooms from the tortures that had happened when the Japanese were staying at the school. The school replaced the tiles many times, but every time the bloodstains would reappear. Finally, the underground area was sealed off. There were rumors that there was an escape tunnel down there that led to the river. Later in the war, when the British and American soldiers returned, many Japanese were killed in the fighting on the school grounds, and the students still see and hear the ghosts of the Japanese soldiers that were killed there. When I went to college, my parents carefully chose an apartment for me. They were worried I'd spend more time partying than studying. The apartment my parents rented for me was old, and I shared it with three other students. It was actually very nice, and I was excited to move in. I had no idea that I would come face-to-face -face with the paranormal. Once I moved in, some strange things started happening. It started with the TV in the living room. We were sitting on the couch, watching TV. The remote was sitting under the table that the TV was on, upside down. The back was off the remote, so we could see that there were no batteries in it. The sound on the TV was low, so I asked one of my roommates to turn it up. He refused, so we just sat there. However, the volume bar on the TV started to go up and remarkably stopped at a comfortable volume. For some time, we were all a little creeped out by that. After some discussion, we had decided that if our apartment was haunted, it was probably not haunted by some kind of evil spirit. After that, I started hearing strange noises at night. Not creaks or bangs, just ticking noises. A few nights later, I was in my bedroom trying to get to sleep when I heard a loud crash on the wall behind my head. The mirrored door on my closet actually shook. Right after it shook, my bedroom doorknob began turning rapidly. 
that stopped and my bathroom doorknob turned rapidly. After that, my VCR, which was to the right of my bathroom, turned on and then off by itself. The window to the right of the VCR then began to shake. Then the thud behind me again. I had no idea what was going on, and I had absolutely no explanation as to what was making the noises. Nobody else had any experiences in their bedrooms, and I didn't have any more after that. But the TV in the living room was still affected. I've long moved out since then, but I still think it was an interesting story. Also, I was interested in theories on what or who was in our apartment. I was dog-sitting for a friend in Queens one evening. I had the TV on, popcorn in hand, and the dog, a muscly but very sweet pit bull, snoozing next to me. The front door was in view, in this very small apartment on the third floor, and all doors and windows were locked. Suddenly the pup perked up and deeply growled. She jumped up and ran around the corner into the kitchen. I followed her, standing in the middle of the kitchen, is a shadow person. I could barely see the counter behind it and it looked vaguely wispy around the edges. Roughly six feet tall just standing there looking at the dog. The dog stops, hackles raised, growling at the thing and barking. I gasp. The thing turns to look at me and takes a step back, almost in shock. Maybe it was shocked that I could see it? I quickly yell at it to leave tell it that it is not welcome here and that it can never come back. It walks through a wall. The dog and I eventually calmed down. I was 15 and I was at a birthday sleepover and we were all in the living room. At around 11 p.m., everybody went to sleep but me. I was lying on the couch, watching TV and eating. It was 2 a.m. and everybody is still sleeping. There is a half wall that separates the living room from the other rooms, and all of a sudden I can hear somebody walking from the other side of the wall. I thought it was my mom or dad, but I remembered that they weren't home. I was getting very nervous. I kept my eyes on the TV, but I could still see out of the corner of my eye and all of a sudden I see a head peeking from behind the wall and staring at me. I was freaking out on the inside, but looked calm on the outside. Then the whole body was standing there looking at me. I made out the form and it was an old man. All of a sudden he started walking towards me. I threw the blanket over my face, saying out loud, not real, and kept repeating it over and over. I could feel this ghost leaning over me, and the next thing I know, it's trying to pull the blanket away from me. While this was happening, I took my leg from underneath the blanket and started kicking one of the girls and shouting for them to wake up. When the girl finally woke up, the pulling stopped. I said sorry to the girl for kicking her, lied to her, saying that sometimes I kick in my sleep when I don't. Around 9 a.m., everybody left but me. 
I stayed behind to help clean up and I told my friend and her parents what happened. They started laughing, which was making me mad. They told me it was my mom's father and that he died in the back bedroom and that he liked to play practical jokes and sometimes scare people when he was alive. And when he died, the family started experiencing the weird stuff that happens with ghosts and the paranormal. They told me what had happened to me was the ghost's way to welcome me to the family. I never stepped inside her house again. Thanks for joining me for this archive episode of Weird Darkness. Do you have a dark tale to tell? You can share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And if you like the show, please share a link to this episode on all of your social media, tell your friends about the show, and please leave a rating and review. I might read your review here in the podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Patrons get commercial-free versions of Weird Darkness and early access a month early to the Weird But True video series. Plus, patrons get exclusive content such as chapters of horror and paranormal books that I'm narrating into audiobooks as I record them. Learn more about becoming a patron at WeirdDarkness.com. Also on the site, you can get the free mobile app, follow me on social media, join the Weirdos online community, see where I'm going to be on location in the future, and on the page labeled Weird Web, you'll get stories I didn't use in the podcast, fan art, pictures that weirdos like you send in to me, a weekly zombie comic strip, that and a whole lot more at WeirdDarkness.com. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Again, thanks for joining me in this archive episode of Weird Darkness. <laughs>